Hello everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram. My username is Law Lockdown. Check out my website, www.lockdownlaws.com. And finally, if you have the time, please give me a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening, and I appreciate your support. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. My guest today is attorney Catherine Tucker. Catherine has spent decades advocating for the rights of the disabled and has even litigated in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Catherine, thank you for being on my podcast today. Good morning. Happy to be here. So what was it like advocating in front of the U.S. Supreme Court? So I had the great privilege of making an oral argument to the United States Supreme Court in a case about the rights of dying patients and whether those who found themselves trapped in an unbearable amount of suffering should be able to ask their physician for aid in dying, where the patient would be able to ingest medication for the purpose of achieving a peaceful death. And we made that argument on behalf of a number of terminally ill patients and the physicians who provide care to those patients. And the claim was that that choice is a profoundly personal decision that will be informed by one's entire set of values, preferences, and beliefs. And that it is so personal that it should be reserved to the individual as a privacy or liberty interest protected by the United States Constitution. So it was an important case. We had actually brought two different cases that were virtually identical, one on the West Coast known as Glucksburg versus Washington, one on the East Coast known as Quill versus New York with the idea that because we hoped to take the case to the Supreme Court, we would have a greater chance of getting there because two different federal circuit courts of appeal would have ruled on it and probably in such a different way that we would have what's known as a split in the circuits, which is one of the reasons that that high court accepts review. The interesting thing that happened is that we won in both federal circuits, in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on the West Coast and the Second Circuit Court of Appeals on the East Coast. So there was no split in the circuits. Both of those federal appellate courts felt that this was a choice that must be reserved to the individual. Um, And yet the SCOTUS took review, uh, probably because it was such an interesting case. And it set the hearing uh, for both cases on the same day to be heard back to back. And um, so highly, highly unusual. And yes, the argument was really quite interesting to be in that courtroom, 
and to be before that bench and to have two cases heard back to back the same day. Um, and as you may know, the outcome of that was the U.S. Supreme Court said, we might go there in future. We will not go there today in terms of recognizing a federal constitutional right to choose a more peaceful death through aid and dying. So the court was very careful to reserve that possibility for future. But what it did at that moment was invite the states to really grapple with this issue. And so um, as often the court does uh, on controversial social issues, it invited what's referred to as the laboratory of the states. Let's let one courageous state experiment with this um, option and the other states can watch and learn. And of course, that's what happened with regard to aid and dying is almost immediately after that Supreme Court decision, the state of Oregon, which had enacted through the citizen initiative process, a so-called death with dignity statute, that statute was able to come into effect. And so the laboratory that the SCOTUS had envisioned began to operate almost immediately after the decisions were rendered. And then, of course, you know, history tells the story. What's happened in the 20 years since then is that many states and, and an increasingly large number of states have followed in the footsteps of Oregon where dying patients are empowered to make that choice. Yes, the states are the laboratory of democracy, and uh, that is such important work you're doing and, and so fascinating and impressive to get to the U.S. Supreme Court in your, your legal career. Um, so I've also been following your work on psilocybin use for patients with late-stage terminal illness. It is a fascinating and promising, so I would like to ask you some questions on this topic. First, explain to our listeners, what is psilocybin? Psilocybin is an element of the psilocybe mushroom. Uh, that is how across all of time, um, these particular mushrooms have an agent within them that is psychoactive. And so when you consume those mushrooms, they're sometimes referred to as magic mushrooms, the psychoactive agent, psilocybin, gives rise to a very profound experience for the consumer. And with regard to the experience for terminally ill patients, which of course, because my life's work has been focused on the interests of that community, um, I've looked at this through the lens of how does this drug affect these patients? What is its utility with this population of patients? And what it does is it is a potent palliative tool for relief of non-physical suffering. Patients with terminal illness often experience anxiety and depression. And for some of those patients, conventional therapy is not effective. And that depression and anxiety can be so debilitating that the quality of the remaining life is adversely impacted. 
to where the patient really cannot enjoy that last quantum of life. So what's so exciting about the clinical trials that have been coming out of major research institutions, including Johns Hopkins, NYU, UCLA, these studies have looked at treating patients with advanced illness with psilocybin therapy and find that a single guided session provides remarkable sustained relief from anxiety and depression. It essentially changes how the patient feels about their medical situation, uh, their prognosis, and enables them to come to peace with it so that that suffering is relieved. And that is a remarkable tool for the palliative care toolbox because one of the you know great achievements of the last quarter century is so many advances and and many of them in the wake of those cases I mentioned because those cases uh, shown such a bright spotlight on how we care for dying patients in the U.S. that it galvanized efforts to do a better job and to provide better pain and symptom management for terminally ill patients. So tremendous strides have been made in addressing pain and other distressing physical symptoms, but less success, less progress to address non-physical suffering. So this psilocybin therapy represents a tool that fills a gap in the palliative care toolbox. And so can you walk me through how this is administered? Uh, What is the setting? Who administers it? And um, is there preparation for any potential bad reactions? So the clinical trials, of course, take uh, place in a very controlled environment where um, ideally the patient has a preparation session and maybe, you know, several preparation sessions. And then on the day that the patient will ingest the medication, and by the way, I should say, and this is a little tidbit of drill down, but the psilocybin that the patients are ingesting in the clinical trials is not the organic product in the mushroom. It is a synthesized version in a capsule. And the patient ingests that in the therapist's office. The therapist usually are two therapists, a male and a female, that sit with the patient. The patient is reclining with an eye pillow and often with headphones for beautiful music. And they're in a very comfortable, serene setting because it is understood uh, that the setting is very important for the experience uh, that the that the consumer has. So it's a very peaceful setting, very supportive and nurturing. And the medicine is ingested and it will take somewhere between four and six hours for the full experience. And the therapists stay with the patient. The patient often has a very profound experience of feeling much more at one with the universe, with the cosmos, with their own life story, with what they understand to be unfolding for them with their illness and what comes next. 
And this has proven in these studies to be deeply relieving for patients with anxiety and depression. Following that day of administration, there is typically what's referred to as an integration session or sessions where later um, the patient has the opportunity to talk with a therapist about integrating that experience in their life and going forward from having had a really profound experience with this medicine. And the studies have shown that just one single treatment session can have a profound impact. That's pretty remarkable. Yes. Yes. And the interesting thing, too, is these intrepid researchers have gone back and interviewed the patients at time intervals, three months, six months, and have found that the effect of that one guided therapeutic session with psilocybin are enduring that the depression and anxiety does not come back. So this is why it's so exciting. And for anyone who is involved with the care of terminally ill patients or has a family member or a loved one or is themselves confronted by terminal illness, these studies are so exciting, which is why Um, In my work as an advocate, I have launched a federal lawsuit to compel the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, to allow access for this important investigational drug for this population. And the law that we are relying upon in this lawsuit is known as right to try. And right to try laws recognize that patients with dynamic and progressive illness don't have the luxury of time to wait for the slow process of new drug approval to wend its way through the FDA. And so the states and the federal government have adopted statutes that say for this population of patients, certain drugs will be considered eligible investigational drugs and available even though they're not yet approved through the full FDA new drug approval process. And the requirements to be an eligible investigational drug are that a phase one clinical trial has been successfully completed and that the drug remain under investigation in later stage trials. All of that is true for psilocybin, which makes it clear that under the terms of right to try law, this is an investigational drug that should be available now. Um, And so of course, rescheduling of psilocybin to a place on the Controlled Substances Act schedule where physicians can prescribe it, this is something that is the main avenue to reform, and it is the objective of the continuing clinical trials. But the right to try opens the door to access to this population of patients sooner, and we are trying to open that door. Have there been any studies expanding this to uh, those with severe PTSD or even 
traumatic brain injuries? Yes, and that is not my special area of interest. But if you are excited about your podcast hosting a guest whose specialty that is, I can certainly introduce you to who those people are. But that is another really powerful application is relief of PTSD, particularly remarkable results with veterans who have had terrible trauma sometimes in their service, and they are unable to function in society when their military service concludes. And then they have treatment facilitated with this medicine and they are able to return to high function. And it's really dramatic and very exciting. Yes, this seems very promising. I mean, what are the arguments you have heard against legalizing psilocybin in these settings? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know that there is a good argument to be made against this. And I think this is why we're seeing such a groundswell of public interest and support. And if you haven't read Michael Pollan's excellent bestseller called How to Change Your Mind, it walks you through the history of these substances, how they've been treated in law and medicine over time, and helps you understand the historical context where we got into the situation we're in today where all of these substances were placed on schedule one, which is the most restrictive schedule and how um, it's taken a renaissance, a modern resurgence of investigational study in these rigorous clinical trials to start to um, revive the opportunity to move these substances off this highly restrictive schedule and put them into a much less restrictive schedule where clinicians that understand their benefits for their patients can make them therapeutically available. So that's a process that is underway. And, it, and I feel confident um, that we will see a sea change with regard to how these substances are treated. But Again, for patients confronted with terminal illness now, um, that process of rescheduling can take decades. And so we're trying to crack the door open for the population that doesn't have the time to wait. And so for any of your listeners that are really interested in opening the door for this population, I hope they will follow the work we're doing I blog about it on the Emerge Law Group blog, um, which is the law firm from which I do this work, and that can readily be found online. Um, and support, financial support for this work is welcome and needed. So those that are interested in making contributions, I certainly welcome their stepping forward because I see this very much as a form of public interest advocacy. We cannot expect a single terminally ill patient to bear the cost of a major piece of impact litigation like this that could change the landscape uh, for all patients in that situation. So we're very much appreciative of the philanthropic community that supports this patient population stepping forward and facilitating this work through donations. 
Absolutely. Well said. You've had many years of hard work in this area, advocating for people who are suffering. What is your favorite and least favorite part of your work? Well, how interesting. I mean, I do feel that how we care for people at the last phase of their life is among the most important aspects of humanity. And bringing attention to the need to empower terminally ill patients with the choices that allow them to make the journey to death in the manner most consistent with their values and preferences. That is a great privilege to get to do that work. It's a great responsibility for all of us who work in this field to dedicate ourselves to advancing this effort uh, because this last bit of the journey is so important and it's an important aspect of civil liberty. It's an important aspect of personhood. So I consider working on this a great privilege and um, an opportunity to be of service, which I think is why so many of us go to law school originally, is we we hope to be of service. And so um, I have felt that I've been able to make a small contribution through my work and am always inspired to keep pushing the envelope um, so that there are more choices and that patients feel more empowered and that they can make that crossing in the way they choose. Well, keep fighting and thank you for all your work and your service on this topic. I know you're extremely busy. Um, so we'll have to end thank it you. here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You have a good day and take care. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.